Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking with Yancey Strickler. Yancey is the author of The Dark Forest Theory of the Internet. He's the director of a new platform called MetaLabel, and before that, he was a co-founder of Kickstarter, the first crowdfunding platform for creatives. The dynamics of crowdfunding have massively shifted the cultural landscape. Alternative media, news, and culture, even this podcast would not be able to exist without sites like Patreon and Substack. But as explored in the recent zine published by MetaLabel, there is still this unanswered question of what comes after the creator economy. Do Not Research is an arts organization that began in the Discord server attached to this podcast. DNR has been publishing twice a week for the past two years, earning press from The Guardian, Days Magazine, and many others. Last year's book launch took place at the New Museum in New York City. It feels clear to me that what we're building is not just an online community, but a real-world arts organization that has staged physical exhibitions, sold-out film screenings, book launches, and more. Yancey and I sketch the future of these new community projects. Spaces like Do Not Research, or new models and trust in Berlin, new internet-native institutions for the 21st century. Let's get into it. You're rebuilding what I would analogize to be a World of Warcraft guild within those creative structures. When the unthinkable Black Swan event happens, this organization will be anti-fragile or whatever the word is. It will survive all of the shocks. Yeah, I think that groups are a needed primitive on the web, which Mm. sounds weird because what's more internet-y than a network of people? But right now we see them as a network of individuals and we we have a hard time recognizing the group as really something. Like even a Facebook page is like a weird admin sort of product. And so to imagine a group, a selection of people who are moving as a body between services, between spaces, there's a great piece from Arthur at Trust about moving castles and the idea of uh, of a group that can move to I any think we're domain. In that essay, actually. yes, That's, yes, yeah, it's I a think great so. Uh, and so I think like the group as an internet native primitive is weirdly I don't think exists, and that is a part of what we're trying to create in MetaLabel is to imagine yeah, a group of creators who can move from platform to platform and still be them, and, and they can operate collectively. There's like a bigger story that I see to what we're going through now. I talked a bit about on interdependence, the idea of what I call post-individualism. I just opened my notes to ask you that, actually. Yeah, that's a really important phrase, I think. Would you define for our audience who are not familiar with that term? Yeah, so I I come at this from uh, a thousand years ago, around a thousand AD, there was a big revolution in European early Western society. And at that point, society was mainly a lot of mini-verses of clans, family-based enclaves. There weren't very many large towns or cities that were quite limited. And most people's lives were dictated by what family they grew up in, what rules existed in that family. They worshiped the ancestors and the patriarch. And the family was the first religion, is a quote from Joseph Heinrich uh, in the book, The Weirdest People in the World, about this. But around 1000, 1100 AD, the Catholic Church began issuing these edicts prohibiting people from marrying their cousins. Unclear why they did this, but it it seems like it was to break apart clan-based power. Because at that time, what was typical is that clans would marry the cousins together within their family so that the family stayed strong, they are more children to work the land. And they're putting down the competition if the family's the religion also. (laughs) And- and But when the Catholic Church issued this decree, it, it had an effect. And within a couple of generations, it was no longer common for that to happen. And there needed to be new spaces created where non-cousins could meet each other to marry. And this is where cities and towns began to take off, because there had to be this new social context where how do you meet other people? Within a century of this beginning, there were these major revolutions that occurred. One is that cities and towns began growing exponentially and there became many more of them because there were many more individuals, newly liberated individuals who needed places to meet. Also, guilds started becoming an important institution and they were a way for people to enter a trade and to have a context in which they could work. Universities were invented so that there was a context in which people could study. And really, a lot of what we think of as modern society began around this time. And so 
the way that this book by Joseph Heinrich encourages us to think about this is that they needed safety, they needed context, they needed some way to know how to navigate with each other as free individuals, free people in the world, and so these institutions were created to do that. I think that the story of the internet is the same, and that the internet re-individualized us. Once you log on, you are no longer the child of whoever your parents are, you're no longer of a geographic place. You can decide whoever, however many you wish to be. It's suddenly just this infinite expanse of identity. And for the last three decades, we have been the early pioneers of this new world. Increasingly, what we have found is that it is not always a safe space. When it's wide open, it's hard to know what to trust. It's hard to know your place. There's all sorts of downsides of this. And so especially in the last five years, there's been a greater and greater shift into more closed social spaces, spaces that are higher context, uh, harder to get into. And I think of these as the guilds, universities of the 21st and future centuries, and that these are new social institutions where we are creating safety, meaning, work, value, economic support for ourselves. The last thousand years of human history was really dictated by those evolutions that were happening in Europe, you know, in 1100 AD. And I think the next, I don't know how many hundreds of years of human history are really being kind of speed run by all of us right now, trying out these different spaces, trying different configurations of how we relate to each other. But really, I think we are creating the social institutions of the present and the future. And so, Someone getting weirded out or duped or rugged by open social media, one of the steps I think they rightly take is they begin to look for higher trust places. They go to the dark forests of the internet, a piece I wrote a few years ago, trying to understand why was I more fearful on open channels? Why was I more and more writing things privately but not publicly? And so I think that there's just this larger wave that we're a part of, of just newly liberated people experiencing the exuberance and freedom of no editors, no filter, be whoever you want to be, indulge in whatever subculture, create whatever identities you want to create. But then we discover that we're not always safe, that we feel isolated. I think we discovered that while you can create infinite identities, our amount of energy is finite. (laughs) So the more you put into your alt, the less there is to your IRL self. Time is very precious too. It is. And so so that's I, that's what I feel like we are reckoning with for you to experiment with, well, what are models and constraints I can put around do not research that lets it fulfill the values that feel most important to me. That is a that is a proto-institution. And that is a model that it's likely that someone else iterates on and that becomes a structure by which other people are able to create meaning and a clearer source of truth together. Mm. And the internet is such a hard reset. We underestimate the degree to what a hard reset it is. And so these sorts of experiments and projects, I think, are much bigger than just us solving our individual problems. I think that we are, we're fumbling and searching and optimistically building for something much bigger. You mentioned dark forests. I wrote the dark forest theory of the internet in 2019, I think it got published. I wrote this piece about, yeah, why do I feel afraid to be myself online? Why do I feel safe in these other spaces? And attaching that idea to Shishin Lu's dark forest theory and the Fermi's paradox of the reason why the universe is quiet is because everyone knows it's not safe. And so you don't show yourself. Like the rational thing to do is not show yourself. So I wrote that piece. I think three days later, Venkatesh Rao wrote a piece that was a response to it where he introduced the idea of the cozy web and cottage core. And that's where those ideas were first introduced. A couple of days after that, the designer and engineer Maggie Appleton made an amazing design of showing clear net, dark net, dark forest, this interesting illustration of the web. A couple of years, or about a year after that, Carly wrote a piece, maybe it was for Document, about the internet didn't kill counterculture, you just won't find it on Instagram. And I also had a piece with Julian earlier this year about holographic media, sort of looking at the state of uh, the web today. Laith uh, Binkata, who's a part of Do Not Research, also has a piece as a part of this. So I reached out to all these writers. There's 10 of us. 
said, you know, I think I think all of our pieces are a kind of a canon. Yeah, it is. Yep. Asynchronous, accidental canon mm -hmm. that I view my pieces. It began a conversation, but like I think the things other people said were, you know, took it so much farther. And what if we collected these into an anthology? And what if we were what if we were a kind of a label? And so everyone was down for that. And so this fall we'll we'll be releasing the Dark Forest collection, which will be a physical book collecting all of these pieces with some new context. And the idea is one, to use a similar economic model as I've talked about of we'll sell a work, we have pre-agreed splits that will come from the sales of that. In addition, 30% of the money from those sales will go into a treasury managed by the Dark Forest Collective by our label that we will use to fund further projects. And so there's already uh, two other projects that will be coming in the months after that, another book and then an event, hopefully. This was a, I don't know, a, a real-time accidental manifestation of the ideas in the piece and the conceit and, and desires of MetaLabel. And yeah, to me, I, I don't know of a of a great analog of something that's happened like this on the web before, where they're just like, what is beautiful about the web is the call and response creates these canons and these, you know, dialogues of knowledge that isn't just one node, but it's all these nodes together. And what's a way to express those and to to make them real, to celebrate them, to give everyone their their spot as a part of it. So yeah, that that will be coming out later this year. And yeah, Carly's Carly's work has been incredible on that front. Yeah, I mean, all of those essays I think are formative in how we approach organizing the community and the content feed. And you know, at some point, I realized that the podcast was not the end project, but the podcast was the necessary strong signal to collect a group of like-minded people with a shared value system. And then when you have all of that creative potential together, the point is then to build something durable and long-lasting and to carve out influence for those ideas and to really create a permission structure for people to be able to publish work that is, that is in that style and aligned with those values, you know? And, and when I first published Politogram in the Post Left, I really hesitated because I just didn't know of another project that was like that. And I, I didn't know if it would be valuable or if anyone would want to read it. And I think probably if there was an organization like Do Not Research that was like, oh, yes, absolutely, we want to publish that, I would have not hesitated at all. But I think of this because I was literally, uh, I was passed on by several institutions to publish the work where, I mean, it was offered to them I think largely for free. Maybe it was like a $75 contributor fee or something like that. I mean, big established institutions and they just weren't interested in it. It's curious because then you go to crowdfunding and you're like, okay, well, actually this is quite valuable and a lot of people want to hear about this. Clearly these values are shared by many, but not the institutions of our time. So yeah, build well, maybe, a new one. Yeah, exactly. So create your own institution. I will end up publish the post-individual piece uh, will end up being a part of this book and I think of the Dark Forest Collective's purpose is going to be to explore and perhaps help manifest these social institutions of internet native social institutions, which are not, they start on the web, but they go far, they go far beyond that. Like the post-individual ideals are, if you really think about them, it's, you know, on the web, we have our alts and we're part of many communities. And I think all the communities of the internet are our micro personas joining with other people's micro personas and creating little worlds. But like in the traditional world, there's maybe in a democracy, there's maybe no idea more core than one person, one vote. On the web, it's like one alt, one vote. <laughs> Like one person, one vote is like, that's irrelevant. No, that, that doesn't matter. Like that makes no sense. It's, you know, each self has a vote, but we have to acknowledge that there are many selves at play. And I think eventually these ideas are going to filter back into physical institutions, into other structures that are, yeah, are going to break as a result of them. But mm -hmm. I think that's the, that's the force of the degree of change that is happening. Yeah, I... um. I'll tell this very quickly because I want to ask you about some of the nuts and bolts of MetaLabel and some of the technical specifics that I find very interesting. But I think back to an anonymous meme account that I uh, disown and have no association with that maybe existed like 10 years ago or something. But we had the idea at the time, people would distrust Artforum and Freeze 
and all of the other reputable magazines because they only had positive criticism of people who were advertising in the magazines and there was just a clear conflict of interest. And although this account was anonymous, it was uncompromising in its criticism and people would trust it. And so what we were predicting was an inflection point in the old institutions, in this case, legacy media, where I think now today there are so many stories, like you can count on, you're going to run out of fingers and toes in the past year of just how many issues the mainstream media was grossly wrong about, not like a little bit wrong, like really wrong. And so there's going to become this moment of reckoning where when you see something published in the legacy media, you're going to think, oh, this is not a legitimate piece of information. This is state-run media, or this is a piece of propaganda, or its presence in the quote-unquote paper of record causes it to be delegitimized. And so what people are going to search for are trustworthy places that have a rigorous editorial board that people cannot pay to be included on it. And that will rebuild the social consensus of trust and value systems and and so on. Um, So I'm very long on this idea of new institutions to rebuild consensus reality. And it may not be possible to fight the elite capture in our legacy institutions, unfortunately. That may be the case. But the thing, sorry, to segue just uh, very, very rapidly into some of the tooling for this, because you're you're making this drop, which is a book of all of these tremendously important collected essays. So I imagine when people purchase this, I, I really am energized by a lot of the Web3 options, but I also think it's very prohibitive for people. There's a USD option, and I'm imagining what people are purchasing is that, let's say there's an edition of this text. I'm just, you haven't told me this, so I'm just hypothesizing. There's an edition of this text, let's say it's a few hundred or few thousand copies, and you get a digital version of it. Maybe you get a print version that you can redeem as an option. And then I think you might be buying a ticket to a launch party as well. Yeah, close. Um, that, okay. I was just close. kind of hypothesizing yeah, yeah, what a DNR drop would you're look in. like. If we, <laughs> so I'm just thinking, you're like, the what, producer. Would, what would Yancey yeah, do about it? Yeah. So it's going to be, we have MetaLabel been running this series the past three months called Quality Drops, mm. where we've collaborated with the Ethereum Foundation and Gitcoin, with Water and Music, um, with SongCamp, with Refraction, with different sort of more Web3 institutions to release work, release artifacts of creative work. These drop pages are highly contextualized. It's like a catalog raisonne of the work. Here's the artist statement of why it exists. Here's the full movie credits of who all is a part of it. Here's references and associated works that are part of this to help you better understand it. And then the works are collectible. They're collectible and an on-chain format that we just called a record, but it's like a NFT that inside has a claim for a physical good or a digital copy of the work. And then alongside the on-chain edition, we just have a Stripe checkout of just buy the book. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, typically it's like seventy dollars for the on-chain edition, of which there are a hundred or three hundred, and then you can just buy a copy straight up, and those will be you know thirty bucks, something like that. But the actual output, we're quite flexible about. If someone wishes to put work on chain, we think that's compelling and interesting, and there's lots of reasons to be optimistic about that. But we also know that ninety-nine percent of people don't feel that way, and so then you have just a traditional, just sell the work. So this book will be, yeah, will be, as you said, a edition of, yeah, a thousand some copies. There will be a couple different means to purchase it. Yeah. And you'll be able to see where the money of that, where the money you spend flows. So it'll be split equally between the, all the authors of the book minus a percentage going back to the core treasury. And also we, we used a structure of an advance, something that MetaLay will be releasing in about a month, but we've created a an advance pool, a pool of money where groups releasing work can get an advance for a project. And just like the Discord model I mentioned before, yeah, it's a yeah. 50-50 split of financial proceeds until the recoup is paid back. And after that, 90% of the proceeds go to that to the creator or the label. That's great. So in the case of this project, there's an advance to help pay for some of the publishing costs to bring on a designer. Yeah. And to me, that way of working of a group of people who have their each individual pieces, none of which were monetized, you know, just us publishing just on the web as you do, but we can bring that together into a larger work that really helps center the core ideas is something we can all feel proud of that creates an economic outcome for all of us. And that creates a pool of funding that can be used to do, to fund more projects and to help I think part of this will be an open call to, you know, do you have a piece about 
or an idea or something along mm. these new institutions of the web, like let us know about it. Maybe we'll fund you. Maybe we'll release it. You could be in our group, a part of our label. Right, because you'll you'll accumulate this treasury and then you can, yeah, commission people to make new pieces in that style. Okay. Yes, and if- That makes a lot of sense. And if we have a standard, the meta label- Platform suggested standard will be 30% of the take going back to the meta labels treasury, the release club's treasury, and 70% being split between the artists. And there, the hope, the idea is that everything that you drop, you are manifesting more of what your core idea is, but you're also bringing more revenue and more resources back to the core project so that you can keep going to create a replicable system where releasing work provides resources to release more work. That that is the key to unlock, and you know I think we'll be seeing after people's third or fourth release, what does that look like? You know what what is that economic system really? How does it play out in reality? Yeah, I mean I think um, as excited as I am about a lot of the Web three options to rebuild collaborative structures for creative projects, the major major hurdle for this obviously is that the process of I don't have a most recent count, but this project before the last book had published 159 unique contributors, we're now at a scale of coordination that is just not possible to sit down and give everyone a tutorial for how to do that. So the onboarding process is very difficult and having just a simple USD stripe thing is a huge advantage for coordinating groups outside of like 15, 20 people or something like that. My friend uh, Raphael Rosendahl theorized to me the other day that appreciating and accepting the idea of digital value is maybe a bigger hurdle than a wallet and a seed phrase. Sure. Just that notion of something that anyone can look at for free, it is worth me owning as an individual, or it's worth collecting or supporting, that's still a, a big step for a lot of people to make. And I think it, how, how much that can change is an interesting question. I, I'm optimistic about that, but I also think about the streaming dynamics we talked about at the beginning of right. you look at consumer behavior and consumer behavior tends to dictate how industries operate. Right now, people show they're more willing to pay $11 a month for infinite for access to an infinite jukebox <laughs> than they are $11 to hold the one of 500 of you know young marble giants, colossal youth. You know, And those are different audiences and Bandcamp is amazing. Bandcamp is amazing. But yeah, it's just... Uh, Digital value is a, is an interesting question. I'm long on these things. I do think that it will undoubtedly happen within the next few years. And I would say that because clearly in some of the research for social media, people are so influenced by content and some of these ideas that it shapes their lives. They join political organizations, they enlist in the military, they choose to have children. There's all sorts of things where it would be absurd to say that the digital content they consume did not have value because it's clearly shaping how they allocate their resources and make decisions in other spaces. But I think for the short term, I am concerned with just the accessibility of Stripe processing because I have the opposite problem of all of the Web3 rhetoric where I see these immense treasuries for these groups of like, I don't know, like 30 people in a Discord. And we have like a giant Discord and a thriving community that is actively publishing all the time, but we have no resources. So we're, we're saddled with the reverse problem. When we talk about resourcing the organization and producing a project like what we did last year, this physical exhibition in Holyoke, Massachusetts at Lower Cavity, thank you to Tony Deschenza for hosting us so graciously, we shipped and produced 40 six different works by 41 artists, installed all of them, and then shipped them back. That was a, I mean, it's an extraordinary show. I think I'm like most proud of that as compared to any weird internet project I've done. That one was definitely the best. It was the coolest, um, but it was tremendously expensive. Hmm. It was like extremely expensive. And to not do that in such a way where it was exploitative to the people who were participating in it, where you would have to charge them for shipping their own work, and then people would have to make decisions about, well, I can't make my sculpture this heavy because then I can't afford to ship it. Like you need to rid any of those, those things can't come into the conversation. It has to be just a space in which we allow for these inefficiencies, people can express themselves, create the work that they want to make, and then we just let it happen. Resourcing at that scale to do quality projects requires considering these things all in advance. So yeah, well, you know, to me that gets to the line and the zine about wanting to make, you know, the joy of making work with people who you respect and who respect you. 
a group of peers making something is going to have an energy and I think a kind of a truth if people are, you know, have their egos in check that I think will resonate. You know, if I think of like a a nouns DAO type model of, you know, that's more like a a group of capital allocators hmm. who have all have the means to purchase this extremely high price ticket. And then they're saying, come and make work for us and we'll pay you. You know, it feels closer to like the Steve Bushimi 30 Rock, like Hey Kids meme <laughs> than it does a, a group of peers. And so there's just like a truth of energy that comes out of, I, we don't know where this is going to go. This like this just feels like something to say versus capital leading the outcome. Energetically, it, come, it brings a different, yeah, yeah. different spirit. Now, a project like Gemma by our friends uh, Eileen and Lindsay, you know, that's they're super legit and have great taste and know lots of great people. And I think that project will be great. But yeah, I think that resource, capital resources are a problem, but they're also like not a solution on their own. Right. You that's, know, no, that's true. That's true. It is necessary, but it's not, but it is, it on its own does not unlock meaning. If you have capital, but you have bad editors, the capital will very quickly disperse and yes. you'll be left with bad culture and no money. So yes, good quality editors is actually the key to all of this stuff. Yeah. I was about to reference Matt Dryhurst, which I probably do on every other podcast, if not every podcast. But I was going to say that if the arc of professionalization is inevitable for any, any type of new tool, any genre, any kind of young creative scene, then the best thing that you can do to offset the negative stresses and pressures that happen from professionalization is to have very good first principles in starting the project. So that means equitable splits of the profits from a project. It also means sharing the costs and the labor associated with it. I've been a part of enough young creative projects now that my nostalgia in hindsight, I was really nostalgic for the economic inefficiencies of those early systems. And I really liked chill, kind of hang out, experiment with stuff, make weird work that you weren't necessarily sure how it was going to be monetized. And those things were really formative in my career as an artist and trying out different styles and just learning who I was as a creative. But within that period of time, we're talking about a 10-year creative arc here, a lot of those efficiencies were just ground out by Web2. The streaming economy bankrupted every musician that I know, right? <laughs> like the art market went through boom and bust cycles. I sawed apart giant artworks that I had invested in. I helped my friends literally destroy their artworks and move them out of their studios because the bottom dropped out of the market. And so in hindsight, I wonder if we had better founding principles for those creative projects, if we could have equitably shared the booms and then survive the busts of those cycles, given the increasing narrowing parameters of professionalization, if we would probably all be in business and still collaborating today and, and all of those things. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not allowing myself to be properly nostalgic for the inefficiencies, but I am trying to plan with intention do not research as it flourishes into a new institution that this will be something that is durable, withstands the test of time, and is not a reading group that pops up for a year and a half. When you say inefficiencies, what are you thinking of? Inefficiencies, I would say it's very clear in the case of music where the streaming economy was super efficient in placing money where attention was. And if you had an album that had like 12 songs and there was one big hit, people would just stream the one hit over and over and they would ignore the rest of the album, right? So obviously this is preferential for consumers and not for the artists because the context and the rest of their project is stripped away. In terms of the inefficiencies of the art market, I think what I enjoyed was, I'm borrowing this from Mariana Mazzucato, her book, The Entrepreneurial State, was on my last syllabus. She's an immensely important thinker. She describes it as spillover value. So essentially what we were doing is selling these big tokenized artworks. All of the value of the discourse and the experimental projects that we were doing were captured through the value of selling big 40 by 60 inch wall works at like several thousand dollars price. And all of the speaking gigs were unpaid and all of the weird experimental projects on the internet were unpaid. But that generated the value that was then captured through the sale of the artwork. Mm. That spillover 
allowed for all of the experimentation that we were doing. But what happened in the bust of the art market is that you're not selling wall works, so there's no spillover, but you're still doing the experimentation online, which I've done for a decade, and you're still doing the discourse, which I am, we're doing right now, <laughs> and we've, I've been doing for more than a decade, uh, and you've been doing for longer than that. I guess we can't go back to the inefficiency, so we just have to make a plan that allows for those things that were important. We have to find new financial mechanisms to allow those things to happen. And if we don't, they just will not happen. Yeah, I mean, I think streaming, film, television, and music, very telling in that, you know, there's the pay, Spotify pay musicians more argument, or this argument that musicians should be better compensated for what they do, which I definitely don't disagree with. But just history has shown us that consumer convenience in the end is what wins and what determines the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why people moved from having download folders of MP3s on their hard drive to streaming in the cloud. And there's maybe an economic argument that those of us who buy things on Bandcamp um, and who go that extra step maybe care about. But just for the vast, overwhelming majority of people, that is not the case. And for these industries, these industries just, you know, they just want to deliver content to eyeballs and they don't they're working backwards from that, not working backwards from what an artist needs to support themselves. Right. And so there's this, maybe to an artist, it feels like an inefficiency. To those big platforms, it feels like, oh, market market efficiencies are happening. <laughs> you know, this, this stuff is finally getting straightened out. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, it's hard to know how to reckon with that, except like, here is an utter truth of the world that is definitely not to my liking, but it's it's hard for me to see a way around it. Yeah. But to like think about how how do you protect yourself or you know how how do you as a idealistic project not end up succumbing to the machine? There's like extreme examples that are very instructive of like the dogma 95 school of just, you know, <laughs> it's a it's a manifesto. If you break it, you're out. <laughs> the manifesto <laughs> is like black and white, and you cannot, you know, you cannot be Hollywood and do that. Those are just mm -hmm. completely incompatible. There's like the Discord records model of there's a economic structures that have certain outcomes. There's handshake agreements that are feel very different than any other system, and through that, it creates a cozy cottagecore experience of <laughs> hardcore and, and punk rock. And those are ways that you you just create a separate society that mm -hmm. it's just incompatible. And yeah. you're just taking yeah. that from the beginning that, that that's the deal. But I think what often happens, and I think you've mentioned experiencing, and a lot of people I've spoken to have experienced is a group of young people who start collectively releasing work Maybe one person becomes more of the star. You're the Michael Jackson of the Jackson Five, mm -hmm. and your career goes in one direction, and the rest of the group does not. That's where a lot of these social agreements we have with each other become really challenged, break, I think most typically. And if I can just provide a bit of context for that, um, starting, for example, a Tumblr that was a collaborative project between a bunch of artists, there will inevitably be one person in a collaboration or a few people, you know, there's going to be a few people that have orders of magnitude more success than all of the founders. So you're looking at value that is created collaboratively from which the profits are taken privately. The collaborative project becomes the launching pad for a few people to go on and have extraordinary success, essentially like retire at the age of 25 is what we're talking about. While the other people in the example I gave earlier have to saw apart their work and get rid of their studios. So what I think about in hindsight, this was basically a collaborative project and there were a bunch of people who were co-invested in it in the form of a social agreement. It was not an LLC, where when you file an LLC, if there's you know 10 founding members, they all own an equal part of that. And it seems like this extreme free markets just had the end effect of basically bankrupting most people in the creative projects, even if they are contributing something of value. Um, I mean, I can think of websites that literally scraped our social media analytics to produce a speculative valuation for the financial assets or works produced by our peers. 
So if that is just the ground floor, it would really be beneficial to have a few good first principles for those creative projects. And I look at the young people now who are in the Discord, who are publishing to Do Not Research. At the younger end, they're 19, 20 years old. And I'm just hopeful that it doesn't take them a decade to learn this and that we can figure out some of the things for how to found creative projects moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think your your point is... I mean, it is like the ultimate sort of scare story. And yeah, not not an outcome that leaves a good taste in anyone's mouths. There's a lot of reasons for that, I think. But one is that I think often in these kinds of projects, discussions of money or discussions of ownership are delayed as yeah. long as possible. Yeah. They feel so emotional, so much about ego and judging the relative value of each other that are... All conversations that emotionally, I think, serve to separate if you take a market-based approach or let's measure what each of us has done and what our relative value is. That's, that's like- It's so difficult. Vibe, vibe kill. You know, what I love about like uh, the Discord records model is say they had a standard deal from the beginning. We will advance you money to make a record. Profits are split 50-50 until the recoup is paid back. After that, you get the overwhelming majority of the money and you own your work. And like, this is just how we do things. And everything costs $10, you know, and that that's our structure. Mm -hmm. And people knew if they were releasing music with Discord, like this is the arrangement, you know, and it's there upfront. They weren't negotiating a new deal every time. So it's like, you didn't know if you were getting screwed or what. There was just a normalization that you were opting into or not. Mm -hmm. And so I think that type of structure, it's, it's, de-emotionalizing the conversation. It's uh, like standardization, I think, can help in things like that. As, as I think about the MetaLabel project, I think that is one of the important things for us to solve is to create that clarity and comfort about how money will work, about what it means to be a part of a project from the very beginning. Very black and white thing that both parties have a, a say and control over. But yeah, there's a lot of, I think a lot of the hard parts of figuring out how to release work together with other creative people, come down to these questions of what are we owed? Uh, what does it mean that we're doing this? What does it mean if this goes really well? You know, And those are things that I think you can create those principles and values from the very beginning that can last and survive you know, those sorts of moments. Maybe you're not still the same squad at the end of you know, one of your work selling for millions more than everything else, but it can still fit within the same economic and social structure that you began with. I selected a quote here from a zine you recently released called A New Creative Era. So much of what you've said and your podcast episode with Interdependence and uh, so many other places where I've, I've heard you discuss these topics, I just resonate with so much as a burnt out content creator who's looking to build new alternatives and, and so on. But I, this quote in particular just really struck me. We don't want to go viral, we just want the basics. To make work we're proud of, with people we respect, and who respect us. That's true to our intentions, and who we are and are not. And I think about, you know, I've made a lot of viral comedic works in my time. A certain part of my career is very much involved in early comedy on the internet, and I tell jokes every week on the Twitch stream, and I still do it. But I made the decision when I became a content creator that I wanted to produce things that were true to me and I didn't want to be an internet comedian. I've seen different things go viral. I've produced a lot of content in the past three years now. I see what performs better than others. And, you know, we have this sense like when you're talking about you and your 150 Dunbar's number group of friends that like, oh, I did these three songs and that one was more popular, but the other two are still really good. But then when you open that up to the competitive dynamics of the attention economy, it's not just like, oh, that one song did a little bit better. It's like that one song outperforms everything you have ever made, the totality of your creative work, everything you made in your career by a hundred X, that one song. And it's like, God damn, I can't produce anything else. Like I should only be able to do that song because I'm so strapped for cash and resources that I have to do the... Alex Jones, There's Chemicals in the Water Turning the Frogs Gay podcast every goddamn week for the rest of my life. Uh, and I just, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do the comedy stuff. Like, I care about other things. And to be honest, I would rather just work like a regular job. Like, I'd rather just be 
an accountant or something like or work as a dental hygienist or something that was not creatively fulfilling but paid me adequately i'd rather do that than have another thing that was like not true to what my creative interests were so i've just become this like reactionary anti web2 platform character uh, which i think is a thorny contrarianism that is actually really productive in getting towards these topics but let me ask you specifically about meta label you are building the tools for people to find new ways to collaborate, to create work, to find a market for their work. There's a lot of friction on today's platforms that prevent that type of collaboration. On Substack, um, for example, I, Taylor Lorenz is the podcast guest on Thursday. I was able to tag her on Substack that cross-pollinates some traffic to her site. But on Patreon, like you can't do that, hmm. right? There's there's kind of all these weird ideological decisions that atomize people into individual content creators. The next kind of logical step is payment splits for appearing on podcasts or doing a guest spot in a video and stuff like that, which is still mostly done through this like backend workaround of like, oh, come on the show and then I'll Venmo you after type of thing. But conceivably that should just be already integrated into like the base layer of any of these platforms, which it's not. And that's a curious kind of ideological decision, I would say at the, at the beginning. So maybe I can just ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about MetaLabel and then we'll explore how some of these topics fit into what you're building. Yeah. To your, to your point about these could be basics of these platforms, but they're not. All of the systems around us are still functioning on a creator economy assumption that we're all individual, hopeful stars of our own channels. And that that is, that is what we aspire to. We're here to win the creator economy lottery of having the biggest TikTok today <laughs> and or to be the main character of Twitter. Like that's what we're all here for. And certainly we're conditioned to want that kind of want it slash fear it, but everything presumes that we are competing against each other for, for likes, for reads, for all of these things. And I certainly feel that emotional pressure and anxiety of publishing work on my own. I think of myself as a, a writer who hates publishing. <laughs> the act of writing, they give ideas working, like copy editing, getting something just right. I love like the happiest place for me. The moment I have to publish and my own experience of a work is supplanted by an audience's experience of a work is, I hate it. I hate it. Even when something goes well, I hate it. Hmm. Because my own intentions and motivations for making something, what it means to me, I feel like I'm giving those up in some kind of way. Interesting. That's something that maybe I just need to be stronger. Uh, you know, I just got to grit through it. But in my wife is a painter. We were talking about how great it feels to paint a work. But then the moment you show it to someone, it's just how they respond, how much they respond. All these things just color your own experience of something that is so personal. And that's, you know, seems like a fact of life, but it's something that um, I think for some people, maybe me included, it's really difficult. But in this project of MetaLabel, I'm a part of a group of five people, all creative people with different skill sets, and we produce releases collectively, including this zine that you read. When I publish something in that context, it's a very different emotional experience where rather than like the agony of, oh shit, I'm letting go of this thing I care about and no one, everyone's gonna think it's boring or trad or mid or whatever, whatever the bad <laughs> thing is to be today, it's that, it's the epitome of that. And instead, when I publish something together, even if I'm the main author in our discord, we'll, we'll often talk about holding hands before something gets released. But this, I always have this image that we're jumping off a cliff together. <laughs> and it, I feel more like, look at the great design that Ilya did here. Look at, look at this great newspaper box that Austin, you know, executed for us to distribute this. Like, this is not, I am not centered here. The work is centered, the idea is centered, the motivation and hopes are centered, and it makes it more something I feel proud of than something I feel anxious of. Mm. And I don't think that's an everybody thing. You know, I think a lot of that is who I am and my own experiences, but as we've talked about that feeling and tried to express, yeah, the the joy of making work with people who you respect and who respect you. To me there's like nothing greater in, in my many different experiences and projects to be among a group of peers 
who you feel are you are all on equal footing, like I, I don't know of anything more enriching than that. Like that's way more enriching than any individual success in my experience. And it's reaching for that. And and in the the project of Meta Label, it's trying to create the conditions where that is possible for a lot of creative people. A year and a half ago, we first published a manifesto that introduced the idea, introducing Meta Label. And it was promoted this theory that what an indie record label is, what a project like Mischief is, or McSweeney's, or the Royal Society uh, decades or centuries ago, all those projects are groups of people who shared some common worldview, creating an umbrella, and then individually releasing work under that umbrella. It wasn't yeah. like they gave up their individual voice to be like, I am now Discord member O2 or something. <laughs> like you're still, you're still Ian Mackay, you, you know, you're you're still smart, went crazy. Uh, and, but by putting yourself into a larger context, you're manifesting something more than just your own ideas and work. And that there's centuries of cultural success that has come from these models. When we expressed that idea, it was a very sincere, like, is this, do people vibe with this? Is this crazy? Um, is this bullshit? And received so many messages in the weeks after from people writing in to say, oh my God, I feel seen. You know, I've never known how to talk about what I do. Our group, we always feel like the weird ones at the party. You know, when someone asks me <laughs> what we do, I feel like a Jenga tower collapsing. You know, and people just lacking social context and the social permission mm. to choose to be a part of a group to choose to have both a personal practice and a collective practice. And the idea that that could be normalized, that that was something that they weren't having to invent from scratch every day just to continue existing, that really struck a chord and gave us a lot of confidence that this was a project that had a real truth in it that we just had to keep exploring. In the past few years, let's say the 10 plus years that I've been doing this, I had my first show, solo show in 2013, but I was already collaborating on internet projects in 2011, 2012, and, and so on. I saw this era, I didn't properly understand it at the time, but I would, in hindsight, describe it as social media removed all of the gatekeepers. There's no editor between you and what you can post on the platform, right? There's nobody between me and what I can tweet out or post to YouTube or post to Facebook or whatever it happens to be. And I found that to be very liberating at the time because I was, you know, I started out in photography and weird internet art and neither of those were properly integrated into institutions. Some of that did happen in the following years, which I think is great and very exciting. But my sense now is that the creator economy in the Web2 spaces and this lack of gatekeepers has kind of been taken over by the dynamics of Web2 where I would attribute a lot of the stuff I've spent the last few years looking into is like the rise of really extreme ludicrous political influence and things like that to be a result of no editors or gatekeepers, right? Like the idea that someone would have beliefs totally beyond the Overton window and get a platform for them. This is what alternative media was built for, for, for better or worse in some cases. Now, mostly for worse. <laughs> so from that position, you try to calibrate like, well, do we really want to return to this model of like the New York Times has the be all end all on any project whatsoever? Like you don't want a single gatekeeper. But I think this idea of creating a balkanized system of mini record labels is empowering smaller gatekeepers and voluntary communities of self-association where, for example, in Do Not Research, there is no amount of money that you can pay to be posted on the blog. The way that the value created by, people are going to absolutely lose their minds because everyone is allergic to finance. And then I find myself in the unfortunate position where I have to rigorously think through these things or the project will disintegrate. But in the hopes of founding a new legitimate institution by thinking through all these things very transparently in public, the way that Do Not Research creates value is that there's a board of editors largely me and a bunch of volunteers who go through and select what they think fits the ideas that this project is centered around. And if it passes the editorial consensus of that group of people, it gets published to the blog. But there's no way that you can just directly upload your work. You can't pay 50 bucks or $50,000 to get posted to the blog. If it's a shitty 
post and it's a bad essay and no matter how much money you pay, you don't get posted to the blog, that creates a different type of value that's, that's very difficult to recreate. But the problem is that on all of the Web2 platforms, that has just become ideologically, but also technically impossible. Mm. It is technically impossible to create that. So that's what we need these new tools for, is to re-empower smaller editorial groups to have a context and a consensus around what their values are as a community. What's been interesting about the MetaLabel project is it's been a live and in public exploration and manifestation of these ideas where we as a group of people keep having releases and drops that are very sincerely and earnestly just trying to express what we feel like is next, what we as a group need to operate. We've adopted a strategy of progressive productization where we do something for ourselves, and then if it works for us, then we figure out how to make it available to other people. When we released After the Creator Economy, we made this on-chain traditional fiat release structure for how to put out a zine that went extremely well. So then we made that something that 30 other groups have used in the past few months. Similarly, we started giving advances to people, just realizing, oh, there's like three grand would make a huge difference to this project. Like, how can we do that? And so next we'll be productizing an advanced structure as a way for any group of people to be able to distribute money to each other to release things. So I kind of look at, we've had eight releases so far, but all of them are true to a moment in time and true to us sort of coming to understand what this project is and is meant to be. Yeah, and constant doubt and uncertainty along that path. <laughs> but like the act of releasing is an act of manifesting. You know, it's like the more time you sit together saying, what should we do? And you like try to moneyball some strategy for your project. It's just, that's death. It'll that's just never, death. Yeah. That's just like, you're just amplifying anxiety within anxiety. Every time we release something, just get energy. And, you know, we just learn to sort of follow what feels most true to us as a group. But it's not long after a group of people decide to do something, you get together, you get into the thornier questions. Well, how do we, how do we decide things? How do we do things? And that's another area where we're going to be quite opinionated and try to share a lot of ideas for different models and different ways that people can approach. But I think, I think a level of deep thinking on that front is also important to getting those values right from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited for what it is that you're building. And I think it's absolutely necessary because the culture of the last few years that the internet is built to support is just, I think, very disappointing for a lot of people. We've got enough viral videos for <laughs> the next century, but um, we're missing these kind of cool, creative, just weird things that don't neatly fit into any other box. So you have to build that container to allow it to happen. So yeah, I'm very excited for it. And thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Yeah, appreciate it. More again soon. Thanks for listening. This is an independent show. If you like this content, you can help to show your support by subscribing and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can support the show on Patreon, Substack, or Channel. Find me on socials at Joshua Citarella on Instagram or Twitter. This is a listener-supported show. I don't do any advertising, so your support is really what keeps this project going. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. Thank you.